Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for October 5th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be taking a look at a bunch of news, including a Bob's Burger movie, Star Trek Discovery Changes, a story, the, what the story is for Pacific Rim Uprising, a new addition to the Back to the Future canon, and some surprising Avatar and Venom casting news. Uh, in our future presentation, Y-Trend Bowie is going to join us to talk about the quest to keep Blade Runner 2049 reviews spoiler-free and the rise of spoiler culture. Uh, but with me now is Slash Film senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Slash Film managing editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. How are things going, guys? All right, yeah. <laughs> All right, Jacob, are, are, is the move going any better? People things demand an update. <laughs> what? For, for, for people who've been following this, things are looking up slightly. There's a chance... Things go a little faster than expected, so we'll see. <laughs> okay, we'll keep you updated. Uh, let's dive into the news. Uh, Bob's Burgers is going to get a movie uh, in 2020. Jacob, you wrote this article for SlashFilm.com. What do we know? Uh, yes, pretty much all we know is that there will be a Bob's Burgers movie hitting theaters on July 17th, 2020. Uh, they haven't announced a director yet. They haven't announced a writer yet. I imagine the writers will be... The show's writing staff, most likely, are people from there. I imagine the director could possibly be somebody who worked in the show. Um, But that hasn't been revealed yet. All we have is that release date and the intention. A fun uh, quote from series creator Lauren Bouchard, who says, um, to run to the very end of his quote here, it has to be the best movie ever made, but no pressure, right? So there's definitely a really fun tongue-in-cheek quote that reminds (laughs) you of the the humor of... um, Bob's Burgers. And I'm not going to say I'm a Bob's Burgers super fan. For those of you who don't know, it's an animated series on Fox about the, the Belcher family who run a burger joint in this seaside tourist town. And it reminds me a lot of King of the Hill in that in that it has sort of very stripped down human characters who are very relatable. It feels real. But it also reminds me of early Simpsons and how it's sort of anarchic and gleeful in its comedy and can get very, very silly. So it's very much the a show that, um, while it's never been as big as those two shows in terms of like 
maybe latching onto mainstream culture. It has a strong following, but I feel like its following comes from it being such a low-key, weird, eccentric little show. And I don't see how they translate to the big screen, but at the same time, all, all power to them. I, I, have you guys watched this show? I'm curious if anybody else has a different opinion than me and how this could work as a movie. I've never seen it. I've heard good things, though. Yeah, I have also never seen it. It does seem strange that Bob Spurgers is getting a movie. It, not many animated television shows, you know, make that transition from the small screen to the big screen. Obviously, you know, Flintstones and Jetsons and South Park and Simpsons have done it. But, um, you know, th- there's decades of Simpsons television and they have one movie. And Bob's Burgers has only been going on for what, like, probably like five, six years, something. Oh, like the that? eight, the eighth season premiered eight a few season. days ago. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, unlike The Simpsons, which got its movie twenty years into its run, uh, Bob's Burgers is still good. Um, people can argue <laughs> about which seasons are good or not, but it's getting a movie before it's before it's uh, overstayed its welcome. So, I guess my main concern is that. In the same way how The Simpsons felt the need to literally threaten the entire town of Springfield and turn The Simpsons into heroes for its movie, I don't want a Bob's Burgers movie where it's them having to go out on a grand adventure to save anything, where it's life and death stakes. The show's charms are about how mundane it is and how real this family dynamic is and how much fun it is to be with these weird, lovable characters who care more about you know paying their mortgage and getting by than, you know, than actually doing anything that you'd, ima- that you'd imagine in a big screen movie. But, so unless they're making like a really low key slice of life drama slash comedy animated movie, <laughs> I don't know how it's Bob's Burgers is a movie. I'm really curious to see how they crack that. It'll play at Sundance or something. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. I, I don't know. I just don't see them making a feature film if it doesn't kind of have a grandness to it you know you need to fill up that big screen in some way uh as much as i'd love to see the sundance version of that um i I just don't imagine that that's what's in the plans for fox but again i've never seen the show so who knows um moving on star trek discovery which we've been talking about on the podcast is doing some shifting ben you're at the article for slash film.com what do we know So back in June, uh, Star Trek Discovery's final premiere date was announced. As you guys know, it's had a few premiere dates announced over the past year or two. Uh, But the show is finally out now. Everybody has had a chance to check it out. Uh, So in June, when the official final premiere date was announced, CBS said that they uh, expanded the show from a 13-episode first season into a 15-episode first season. And they planned on... um, basically uh, showing the series in two parts in that first splitting that series, the season into two parts. So uh, eight episodes were going to air this year. And then the remaining seven were going to debut in January of 2018. Now that has changed. CBS has decided to make the first nine episodes available uh, this year. And then um, the remaining six are going to be airing in January as originally planned. So it's it's not like, you know, we're not getting any more episodes than were originally slated. But uh, but yeah, it's just a little bit of a, a shift in their schedule. I'm not sure if this is due to 
the show's positive reception that it's received so far because everybody seems to like it. I, I looked earlier today and it has like an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. So uh, that's pretty good for a new show and something with, you know, super high expectations like this or whether this is just the result of the showrunners and writers sort of uh, maneuvering their structure around for uh, that big break that's going to be coming between November 12th when the uh, final episode of the first half of the season airs and then January when season one picks back up again. But uh, but yeah, that's the newest info on that. And Ben, you still haven't seen this, right? That is correct. Yeah, you have no interest. But Jacob, you're a Star Trek fan. Have you watched the new Star Trek? Oh, (laughs) well, (laughs) Star Trek Discovery premiered when I was at Fantastic Fest. And I have yet to see it. I have yet to subscribe to CBS All Access, which is my plan. And this is what happens when you when you're moving and you don't have all of your things <laughs> to um, <laughs> fall back on. But I guess. But uh, we had reviews from um, uh, Lindsay Romain, who's a Star Trek newbie, and a review from Monique Jones, who is a Star Trek fan, who's doing it weekly for us. And uh, both of them are positive on it. And uh, Monique has her quibbles, but then again, all Star Trek fans have quibbles with Star Trek at all times. So even though I'm not caught up, um, everything Monique's been writing for us has been very positive, has me very, very excited to dive in when I finally am in, am in a house with a TV again. Yeah. Um, one, uh, j- just to combat uh, Ben's reluctance to subscribe to CBS uh, All Access, one of my friends told me that he's planning on subscribing like during the last month. So that he can just, what is it, like $10 a month or something like that? So he can just subscribe for one month and binge watch through the season and watch the final four episodes as they air uh, for $10, which isn't a bad deal. But um, I'm sure many people probably aren't doing that. Uh, I've watched the first three episodes. The first two episodes feel kind of like, did you guys ever watch Battlestar? Yes, I'm yeah. a big Battlestar fan. So they had that miniseries that was before the first season, and the first two episodes kind of feel like that miniseries. It kind of feels almost like backstory, almost like disconnected, and almost like a whole totally different thing. It's very action-packed and not Star Trek. But the third episode, finally, I'm starting to really like some of the characters, and I'm starting to it's starting to feel Star Trek-y. So um, I'm with it still. I'm, I'm subscribed I'm all in to CVS All Access at this point, um, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, moving on, the official Pacific Rim Uprising synopsis has offered our first story details uh, with the trailer coming out this weekend. Jacob, what do we know? Well, what we know, actually, before we go, we go to synopsis, all we knew beforehand was that this sequel takes place years after the first one. And was going to star the son of Stacker Pentecost, uh, Idris Elba's character from the first movie, played by John Boyega, who you may recall from Star Wars Force Awakens, Attack the Block, extremely talented young actor. But they released this uh, three-paragraph synopsis uh, on the eve of its New York Comic-Con trailer reveal. And I don't, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it is, it is a little long. But the basic gist of it is that John Boyega plays Jake Pentecost, a once-promising Jaeger pilot. Um, who abandoned his father's career uh, to become a criminal, which is why if you remember some set photos from a few months ago, there was some shots of John Boy looking very tough, like on the streets. Apparently he gave up fighting monsters to, for a life of crime. But then the, and an, an unstoppable threat is unleashed to tear through our cities and bring the world to its knees. Uh, when uh, Mako Mori, who you may remember, his uh, adopted sister from the first movie, 
leads a brand new generation of pilots, et cetera, et cetera, seek justice for the fallen. Their only hope is to unite together, a global uprising against the forces of extinction. What's <laughs> most interesting about this is they don't specify what the villain is. They don't say, is it more kaiju? Is it more of the same monsters? Or is it something new that has to unite the Jaeger pilots? But anyway, they also mentioned that there's a new rival pilot to Jake, um, played by Scott Eastwood, and a new uh, 15-year-old Jaeger hacker uh, named I guess 15-year-old Jaeger hacker. I guess it means he's a hacker and a Jaeger pilot. Who knows? Played by Kaylee Spaney. And that's basically it. it, it it's a, it's, there's some interesting stuff here about how uh, Jake's, a, Jake's a criminal, how Mika Mori, played by Rico Kikuchi, is back, and she's recruiting him to finish her father's work. There's a brand new fight. But it's one of those synopsis that manages to say a lot while saying very little. Makes me wonder if the trailers may have a grand reveal of what's going on. Because the first movie never really explained what the kaiju were, or that they were like from a different dimension of some kind. So I'm wondering if that's going to be the big reveal of what they are, what their intentions are, and maybe that's going to be the big hook going forward. Uh, what do you guys think? I, I know that movie movie Twitter seems to be kind of divided on Pacific Rim. I feel like some people really hate it, but I really like it. I'm curious what you guys think about these new details. I'm sort of right in the middle on the original Pacific Rim. I, I like the visual aspects of it, but I think that movie was too dark, uh, like physically dark. It was difficult to see things on the screen at times. Uh, I wish that it was a little bit lighter, not necessarily in tone, but just, you know, aesthetically so I could get a, a good, a better glimpse at the insane action that Guillermo del Toro had in store for us. Um, that sounds sort of fascinating. I do like the idea of, John Boyega playing sort of a classic, um, you know, almost like a, a Captain Kirk-esque figure who is uh, who's dragged into, uh, you know, a life of heroism after being, uh, after sort of doing the classic, like, rejecting the call hero trope kind of thing. Um, so it makes it seem like, a, yeah, sort of a, a classical story. And um, if they can, you know, uh, meld that to massive robot action uh i'm intrigued i had a lot of fun with the first pacific rim i was probably in the minority of people that loved it um and i think it's mostly for my love of del toro and the touches that he puts into it and the fact of the matter is he's a producer on this but he has not really been involved in this movie and that is why i'm a little reluctant to get excited about it uh, i'm not a, as excited about uh what is his name steven knight uh, the director Stephen F. Knight. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, he he did like Daredevil and some other TV stuff, right? And um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, yes, the story sounds promising. I've heard. I'm not sure if this is true, but I've heard that that that, that the the Jaegers this time will like join together in a Voltron esque like way, which could <laughs> oh, wow. be probably the reveal in this trailer. I don't know. And maybe that's not true. Who knows? But <laughs> maybe I'm just speaking out of my butt. But uh, that sounds cool. Um, you know, I'm excited to see these kind of like anime tropes and this kind of like these visuals in live action or as much live action as you could possibly get. Um, uh, but I don't know. Um, we'll have to see. I can't, oh, well, I can't speak for um, Stephen S. Knight as a film director, but I will say the Spartacus series he, re he ran for stars is amazing trash TV, maybe the great trash TV of the 21st century. I love it to death. I don't know if Pacific Rim needs trash, but I feel like if there's somebody who can create great junk food, who's aware that, hey, I'm making a movie where the appeal 
is the basest instincts of, of what we like, which is robots punching monsters. Um, I think he could be the guy, maybe even more than Del Toro, who I kind of prefer making more emotional, small-scale stories. Okay, you sold me. I'm now interested. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. The trailer's coming out this weekend, and we'll we'll, we'll have an evaluation uh, after that. By the way, we should say there's a lot of trailers coming out. Um, Pacific Rim trailer's coming out. We think the Star Wars trailer's coming out Monday. Uh, Justice League trailer is coming out when? Uh, Sunday. 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 So, uh, you know, we'll probably have a lot of talk about that on the podcast next week. Um, but back to reality, a new Back to the Future comic book series is exploring the final line of Back to the Future Part 3. Uh, ben, just as you, as you wrote up uh, this mystery that didn't need to be answered in Star Wars... This comic book is attempting to do this with Back to the Future. What do we know? Yeah, and this is uh, a little bit different, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. So the basic uh, gist of this is, to refresh your memory, if you don't recall how Back to the Future Part 3 ends, uh, Marty and and Jennifer are in 1985. Doc has stayed behind with his love, Clara, and then all of a sudden a time-traveling train shows up and... Uh, Marty and Doc have their final conversation and it basically it ends with uh, Marty saying hey Doc where are you going are you going to go back to the future again and Doc says nope I've already been there and then they get on the train and it like you know lifts off the ground turns into like a hover flying vehicle and then time travels away for the last time so uh, Bob Gale who is the co-writer of the Back to the Future trilogy uh, has been working on uh, Back to the Future comic books for IDW publishing for the past few years and now a new comic series called Back to the Future Tales from the Time Train is going to answer the question of what exactly Doc meant by that last line of, nope, I've already been there. And, you know, I consider myself a pretty big Back to the Future fan. And I, for some reason, completely missed the implication that there was some other adventure that we had not seen. I always just assumed that Doc meant that he was he was referring to the time that he and Marty went to the year 2015 together in Back to the Future Part 2 when Marty was asking him if he was going back to the future. Uh, but I guess because this train has all sorts of crazy you know pieces of technology that are necessary to make it fly and stuff, the implication is that Doc found a way in 1885 to go all the way to the future and then outfit this train with this, you know, with this extra technology. Uh, so that's what this new comic book uh, ongoing series is going to explore that adventure and presumably some others involving uh, Doc Brown and his entire family. So that's the uh, that's the latest. But do we really need to know the story is the question. Like, I feel like it's, it's self-explanatory. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's an adventure that goes along with it, but all we need to know is he went to the future and got hover conversion for the train, right? Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, in the most basic sense, yes. And I think it, this is going to be weird because I was sort of railing against this mentality uh, when I was talking about it with Star Wars the other day <laughs> on the podcast. But I feel like this is the kind of thing where it's not it doesn't strike me as um as quite the same thing and maybe it's just because star wars is so much bigger than the back to the future franchise is and there are so many more 
tiny references and things that um, that the star that Lucas the Lucasfilm story group is uh, you know having to explore deeper and and sort of uh, tie in in this massive ongoing uh, ever growing beast of marketing and and uh, product that they're constantly producing. And Back to the Future feels smaller to me, and it's like it feels more homegrown and more sort of fun. It's like, oh yeah, they're, you know, the, to me it seems like this is one of the first things that they're doing like this. You know, like the the comics, it's well, that, a relatively small scale thing, and Star Wars is just such a behemoth that it, it sort of it takes the fun out of it a little bit for me. The, the, there's only one thing that trumps my love for Star Wars, and that's my love for Back to the Future. It's my favorite film of all time. I've been reading these comic books uh, since they've been coming out the last few years. Um, they're very entertaining. They're very light. Uh, the canning, the canon that they're introducing to the Back to the Future universe is kind of ridiculous. But uh, like, you get to in one of the first issues, you get to meet uh, or you get to find out how Marty meets Doc Brown. Uh, there's this whole storyline with uh, Lorraine's uh, uncle jailbird joey oh, and, like yeah. they go back in time to the 70s it's like this whole ridiculous thing and it, probably the the most interesting of these stories so far has been they show the alternate timeline story oh uh, it's called biff to the future and it, they show biff tannin uh his diabol- diabol- uh, diabolical rise to power in the alternate 1985 uh, from when he gets the uh, sports almanac. So oh, it tells nice. that whole story, which, you know, obviously isn't something that is uh, that current timeline by the end of the series, but it's fun. Uh, but I'm not sure uh, how seriously we should take it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it, it's definitely not going to spawn new movies. That That's for sure. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of new casting that happened last night. Um, the first of which is for the Avatar sequels. Jacob, tell us about it. Well, here's what we know. We know that Kate Winslet has joined the Avatar sequels, playing a character named Ronal. Uh, I do not know if Ronal is an alien name or a human name. I feel like it's one of those names that could be both, um, but we'll find out. All we do know is that um, Winslet, who you may remember, um, worked with director James Cameron previously on Titanic, which broke her into the mainstream, made her a movie star. He had this to say according to the deadline. Uh, Kate and I have been looking for something to do together for 20 years since our collaboration on Titanic, which is one of the most rewarding of my career. I can't wait to see her bring the character of Ronald to life. Um, I love Kate Winslet. Even when he's putting his mouth so his foot so far into his mouth, he's choking. I like James Cameron. Um, at the same time, I have a hard time mustering enthusiasm for the Avatar sequels, which I feel seems to be a common thing amongst almost everybody on the internet. But I like James Cameron movies. I like Kate Winslet in just about anything. And even though James Cameron has been saying all these crappy things about Wonder Woman recently, I still think he has a habit of writing female characters who I enjoy, who I enjoy watching. So the thought of these two working together in a sci-fi setting is pretty cool, especially since the other big casting news by Avatar recently was that they cast a bunch of kids to play uh, Jake and Terry's children, which I'm really worried is to be Avatar babies. But, you know... Um, Kate Winslet is enough to make me think, okay, there'll be some new adults around as well. Because the last thing I need are a bunch of blue children running through the jungle. <laughs> in fact, you know, I would love to see Kate Winslet play the, a human villain. Put her in the 
giant mech suit and let her punch all of Jake and Terry's children to death and get some vengeance. <laughs> that's, that's what I want from an Avatar sequel, is Kate Winslet in a robot, punching babies. Bring it Man, on, James Cameron. That got dark real quick. Yeah. Well, uh, Ben was saying the other day, yesterday, that... Um, you know, talking about Terminator and how the first Terminator was a horror film and the second one was kind of like the sci-fi action film. And I was theorizing, what if the Avatar sequels do that with Avatar, that they become this totally different thing? Um, I'm not sure what that would be. Uh, I'm not sure how Kate Winslet would would fit into that. But uh, she's, you know, I was going to say that she's an actress that is very choosy on what projects she picks. She usually picks um, some elevated uh elevated films and elevated characters but she was also involved in divergent series so i don't know in collateral <laughs> beauties which maybe looked elevated on paper i don't know um but uh yeah i'm not sure if this excites me anymore ben what are your thoughts I mean, I'm just surprised that she's doing this because I always heard stories about how she hated James Cameron making when they were making Titanic because he put her through hell in that movie. Like, I mean, she was in a water tank for whatever percentage of the film. And like he was just, you know, all of the stories were about how uh, <laughs> how much of a dictator he was on that set. And I I thought I read somewhere that she said that she would never work with James Cameron again. Um, but that may have been, you know, just a. Uh, an internet legend uh, quote kind of thing that was circulating around the time. But, um, but yeah, I'm surprised that they maybe just, you know, enough time has passed. Time will heal all wounds. And, uh, and she's forgotten the, the hell that he put her through. Um, But I think, you know, the, the future avatar movies are supposed to involve water a lot too. So that maybe she should be a little, (laughs) a little worried about that. Now I'm thinking maybe, maybe she is a Navi or a cre- alien creature of some kind, because maybe an actress like Kate Winslet would be attracted to the idea of performance capture in kind of, you know, the freedom that that could give an, an actor. Um, yeah. And I don't think she's done that before no. thus far. Uh, yeah. But the, but get, you, you lose her in all those, all the digital makeup, if you want to call it that. Whereas uh, me, I, for sure, put Sam Worthington behind digital because who cares about Sam Worthington? I want Kate Winslet. Damn it! I want her in my movie. I want her doing something physically. <laughs> but so, I, I, I think Zoe Saldana is not lost behind the digital makeup in that first Avatar. I feel like you know, there's some clips like you can see online of uh, the performance capture in the final movie side by side, and it's it's pretty dead on. I mean, she does look like a blue alien, but you know, it it definitely captures her. Yeah, we'll see what she does here. Um, Also in the casting news is it seems like, you know, I'm not interested in this Venom movie. You know, I don't want to see a Spider-Man-less Spidey universe film. But it seems like almost every single decision they're making is like they're sitting in a room and they're like, how can we get Peter interested? (laughs) Okay, we'll cast this guy. Well, whatever. It, It seems like the latest is just another bit of pulling me in jake or ben what do we know yes jenny slate from obvious child and parks and recreation a bunch of great things uh is apparently in negotiations to star as a scientist in sony's new venom movie so 
as Peter mentioned, they have a terrific cast so far. Tom Hardy is playing Venom. Uh, Riz Ahmed is in this movie. Michelle Williams is in this movie. And now Jenny Slate. So it's like a very eclectic, uh, weird group of actors who are, you know, most, mostly known for sort of lower budget, um, quieter type of films. I mean, Hardy is definitely the, the big breakout there, but he has plenty of smaller films to, you know on his resume he's not just a blockbuster kind of guy even though he has dabbled in that area before uh jenny slate i mean this is going to be the first time that she's been in a movie of this size and scale um and man i mean marvel studios has always done a really great job of pulling in you know super talented people in their casting department and it seems like maybe they're rubbing off on uh, on sony here too so um I, we don't really know any more about jenny slate's character other than that she's just going to play a scientist but i hope this is a uh, a meaty role for her i hope this is something where she can actually um you know show some more range and and uh, it's not just going to be uh, a judy greer type of situation where she gets cast and you know you know, walks through two scenes and then that's about it. Can I share a horror story with you, Ben? Yes. <laughs> uh, my horror story is once upon a time, there was a movie called Iron Man three that cast Rebecca Hall and got everybody really excited. Then she did nothing in the movie and she was also a scientist. So oh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm deeply worried they're going to cast my charismatic and funny and charming and then say your job is to say exposition and then die. Yeah, and that's you know that's a good example too because that movie was written and directed by Shane Black, who I think all of us really like his work. And this movie is being written by Scott Rosenberg and Jeff Pinkner. Uh, Jeff Pinkner wrote The Amazing Spider-Man Two, and both of them are working on the new Jumanji movie. So I am basically not exactly thrilled at those guys uh, being the people tasked with bringing Venom to life on the screen here. So yeah, that uh, that sort of puts a damper on what whatever excitement we have about Jenny Slate in this film. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit cynical like Jacob uh, about this, about her being a scientist, because that definitely, it, it definitely connects to exposition and her also being a comedian kind of, it seems like they're going to be like, let's make the exposition funny, you know, <laughs> so the people will be entertained. <laughs> uh, but who knows? We know nothing about this movie. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But that does it for the news. Uh, before we go into our feature presentation, I got to say goodbye to both Ben and Jacob. Ben, you can find at Ben Paris on Twitter. You can find Jacob at Jacob S. Hall on Twitter. Thank you guys for joining me. You got it. See you, Peter. And joining me for our feature presentation is Huay Tran Bui to talk about the quest to keep Blade Runner 2049 reviews spoiler free and the rise of spoiler culture. How's it going, HT? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, so this is a great article on SlashFilm.com. Everybody can go there and read it. But uh, for those who haven't, give us a little taste. So IndieWire wrote this really great in-depth piece about how Warner Brothers has been keeping a particularly tight lid on Blade Runner 2049 spoilers. So we've seen as of late that there haven't been a lot of Blade Runner uh, screenings, advanced screenings for press and media. And at first, this uh, stroke uh, struck up some concern amongst the film community um, because when studios tend to 
uh, have fewer screenings or keep embargoes later, that is usually an indication that they don't believe that a movie will do well or yeah. that they don't trust the movie do, will do well. I believe Mashable, uh, Josh Dickey and Angie Han, uh, former editor of SlashFilm.com, put together an article a few weeks back kind of chronicling a bunch of films and showing that the later the embargo date uh, for reviews, generally the lower the Rotten Tomato score. So it does correlate. Yes, um, but that doesn't seem to be the case for Blade Runner because it's been getting a lot of great buzz uh, leading up to the release this weekend. And it seems that Warner Brothers has been so um, so keeping such a tight lid on these screenings is because they've been worried about spoilers getting out. So uh, Denis, Denis Villeneuve and a lot of the executives at Warner Brothers have have a belief that any plot points from the film are a spoiler for the film. So they have had fewer screenings and they've also had this uh, questionable handout, which gave to um, gave, which they gave to some Houston uh, reviewers uh, re- Im- imploring that they do not release um, five particular plot points from uh, the film in their reviews. So this kind of incited a sort of heated discussion about how far studios can go to keep back these spoilers and how much spoiler culture can sort of be a detriment to the film community and whether it is a detriment to the film community. Uh, So uh, I wrote an article about this and... I am a firm non-believer in spoiler culture. Well, not a non-believer, but I think that a lot of the um, the thought process around spoilers is a little bit overblown. I do not think that every tiny detail or every tiny twist deserves to be completely uh, kept such a tight hold of. I think that like if a film is well made, uh, then one twist or one shocking death won't ruin a movie for you. But that's my own personal opinion. Peter, what do you think about sort of spoiler culture in general and how Warner Brothers has approached the spoilers with Blade Runner? See, this isn't going to be that exciting of a conversation because I'm kind of in your camp that I think <laughs> we put, as, as a society, we put too much value in spoilers and how much a twist or a reveal how much value that has on a movie or story um i mean we were talking about toy story 3 yesterday on the podcast and you know a moment that made you cry and i bet you if i told you that was coming i bet you if we put it on right now and you watch that you would tear up during that moment and you know it's coming you know exactly where that story's going and it doesn't ruin your enjoyment or ruin the emotional ride that you get out of that. Um, I've many times, I think probably on the podcast, I've mentioned that like most people from my generation or younger probably saw empire strikes back knowing the line, Luke, I am your father, you know, knowing that going into it, it, that was, you know, it's considered the biggest spoiler of all time. We all went into it. And still when that reveal happens, Luke's reaction, we feel for him. You know what I mean? It's still, I I don't feel, I don't feel like anybody of my generation who saw that movie knowing that felt cheated then. 
And in rewatching the movie, I still, you know, get chills. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, I feel like this tension that has uh, risen up around spoilers has only become a recent phenomenon. So this has definitely become more ubiquitous with the rise of uh, internet forum boards and the sort of um, how information can spread so quickly about a movie uh, even before it comes out. And, um, you know, when we have a big shocking twist on The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, for example, you immediately see all the reactions on Twitter. And that's what these shows or these movies are going for. They're going for that gut reaction. But I think that there's just too much of an emphasis on this sort of importance of this twist and that immediate reaction versus what it does for the narrative as a whole. Oh, for sure. And I I, I do think it should should be a larger story about... Um, society. I, 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 not to be like a grumpy old man. <laughs> this is about society. Whatever. You know? <laughs> no, no, but I feel like we've become less courteous. And back in the day, whatever that day is, people were more courteous to protect, uh, spoilers and whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, people, mm-hmm. people today are less thinking about that. Um, and because of that, you you get a lot of people that are that are quote unquote hurt by these revela- revelations in public. Um, and I'm not saying that I want Star Wars: Last Jedi spoiled for me. I want to go in and I want to enjoy it, but I don't think learning about anything ahead of time, which I delve into spoilers all the time. You know, mm-hmm. this is this job we have to. Um, I don't think uh, you know. I loved. The Force Awakens. I knew almost everything that was going to happen in The Force Awakens before I went into that screening. (laughs) And I loved it probably more so than the people that didn't. Um, Yeah. I think if it's a particularly well-made film, then knowing the end or knowing the big twist won't uh, spoil your enjoyment of that film. Uh, pun intended. Yeah. Like I had the same experience with The Sixth Sense, for example, which is one of the most famous, famously known spoilers of all time. Um, I knew the the twist going in and I still enjoyed the movie regardless. I thought it was a really well-made film. Um, I knew the twist with Psycho, which is something that is even people who ha- aren't really into cinema just know that twist immediately. Um, so I just think that there's there's too much people are just too up in arms about these kind of things um although i do think that you're right people kind of are more um lackadaisical i guess with their uh with their uh approach towards spoilers or approach towards just like other people's own experience with things and i i think that also i I don't even think it's just in that i think there's a courtesy like yeah Mm -hmm. i see people on the road you know cutting people off i don't know it just (laughs) feels less uh at least from what I remember, like my childhood. I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm sounding like an old man, but um, <laughs> back before technology existed. Yeah, yeah. but um, uh, it's interesting though. You know, studios are so nervous about these spoilers. You know, we uh, we talked a few weeks ago about how we go to on set visits, and even on those set visits, even though our um, our coverage is embargoed until like, you know, if the first or second trailer is coming out, they're being very cautious of what they tell us um, mm-hmm. on set and stuff like that. Um, they're even being guarded there, even though there is an embargo. Um, I think it's interesting that for the film, they gave out kind of like a guideline asking 
critics to protect you know of five main story points uh i haven't seen the film yet and Mm -hmm. i have not read these story points so i don't know if that's ridiculous or not um i think well i think it's interesting because there was such a backlash for uh this particular move because it was reviews and reviews are i think separate from first reactions on twitter for example or uh preview articles that people write because reviews are much more in the hands of these critics themselves they ha- they feel like an ownership towards them so that's why I think there's such backlash against the studio, against Warner Brothers' move by giving this handout because it felt like it could be a, a it could be the start of a slippery slope towards like studio censorship of uh, film critics, for example. I mean, I can definitely see that. I can see that argument, but I don't think we need to discuss those kind of things weeks before the general public gets to see the film Mm -hmm. because what do they get out of it us discussing some big twist in the end of the film right um but i don't know yeah you're right it is a dangerous slope uh it is i don't know i I, I just feel like I, i i don't know i don't know the answer to the question i feel like that is an interesting uh an interesting way of going to be like, listen, you know, we want to protect these three things and Mm -hmm. talk about the film however you want, whatever, but, you know, be conscious of these three topics or something. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, I think also if audience goers uh, don't want to avoid spoilers, they can just avoid reviews altogether. Um, because I know when I am excited about a film and I want to go in as fresh as possible, then I won't read any reviews. I won't even look at the headlines. Um, so people who, um, are upset at reviews or uh, are articles speaking about these movies, you can just not click on it. People are actually upset now about our headlines of like these (laughs) early review articles, our early buzz, giving away what the consensus from the what? reviewers are for a movie. They're like, I don't want to know if people enjoyed this movie or didn't what? enjoy this. Yeah. People think that's a spoiler. So I feel like spoiler culture is out of control. It's gotten a little out of hand. Definitely. We need to like have a firm definition. What a spoiler is. We need to have some sort of statue of limitations on how long a spoiler can be out there or can not be out there. For example, I think uh, we were talking about this earlier with the, uh, with the Han Solo story and about his fate in the force awakens. And we're like, okay, yeah, it's not a spoiler now. It's been two years since the force awakens came out. Yeah. Plus I feel like everybody has seen that movie, but mm-hmm. um, would you consider the, what happens in the first 20 minutes of up a spoiler? See that one is, I, I don't think that it's a particular like a twist or a shocking event. I think it's something that feeds into the overall experience of the film. And if you say like, oh, you know, these this is what happened to this couple you see their entire life. It won't really take away or add anything to someone who hasn't seen the film at all. It's kind of like I was thinking about this with um, Mad Men and how they really put a their foot down with spoilers <laughs> And I was. I, I, I used remember, to love their like next week on video, <laughs> which was like the most ridiculous thing. It was. It like, makes no sense because as someone who didn't watch Mad Men, um, or who's not caught up on Mad Men, people were like, "Oh, this is a spoiler for this next episode." I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. This means nothing to me. So I think that like with those kind of things, um, those kind of like spoilers, it's just 
something that is will be a different experience for you as someone who's actually a fan of that or who has seen that movie or TV show. You know, it's not really a spoiler. So the question is, I mean, we every day are dealing with spoilers on the site and we are having to make these hard decisions of how we cover certain things and how do we we want to be courteous. We want to not spoil things for our listeners, our readers. Um, I think the general line that we usually put is if it's in the trailer, it's you know something we can talk openly about because it's something that if it's something the filmmakers want out there and the studio wants out there it's something we can discuss openly it's not like something we have to hide um yeah it's fair game i think there's sometimes there are some trailers that reveal too much and it's helpful when we've had someone who's already seen the movie and are like okay this is a spoiler for the movie we want to put that in the headline and like hide the trailer down a little bit further but i think in most cases, if it's in the trailer, yeah, it's fair game. So the question is, HT, going forward with spoilers, how do we handle this? Like, you know, Star Wars Force Awakens, J.J. Abrams' mystery box is always, you know, locked, closed. And when they, with Force, Force Awakens, they didn't even, at the junket, show not even, not the movie. Usually the movie is shown for press for the junket before people before journalists can interview the stars in the cast and crew, uh, they didn't show one second of footage at the mm. junket. And, you know, I, I'm betting that's going to be the same way, you know, with J.J. Abrams back for Star Wars Episode Nine. So wh- is what what is the way to protect against spoilers? Just not to screen the movie until the week of release? Well, I think that, Warner Brothers, they tried a couple of strategies with this. So uh, with the idea of like critics buzz, they apparently had an av- advanced screening in which they allowed social media uh, to be to have their embargo li- lifted. So I think in that case, that first reaction from social media is the best option because you can't really go into spoilers and people are less indignant if you put limitations to how much you can spoil through uh, Twitter or through Facebook uh, because it's just like their their own personal opinion and like quickly said uh, in 140 characters or 280 characters or less. So I think that like... Yeah, but now some of these people are doing like five tweets in a row. Is that a review yeah. or is that a first reaction? <laughs> See, that's, that's a whole other debate, I think. But I think this is the best bet by that you can have like the happy medium between not uh, endangering your relationship with the studio's relationship with critics and going for censorship, whatever, and having that word of mouth and buzz that will drive a movie along. So I think social media will probably be the best way to go, which is ironic because social media has kind of been the bane (laughs) of spoiler culture. Yeah. But I think that studios could use it to their advantage when dealing with a movie that is so spoiler heavy, like Blade Runner. I think what would be interesting, and I think many critics would probably hate this, is what if they put two embargo dates? One for first reaction, kind of like the Twitter thing, where you can uh, say whatever you want, but not, you know, have this list of like plot points that they don't want you to discuss mm-hmm. and then the week of release have an embargo date that like all reviews you know whatever you want no holes barred like i feel like that would be the way to go to protect against spoilers but i feel like critics would feel like that is 
too much. <laughs> yeah, they might hate that. That is kind of what they did with the Blade Runner. So yeah. uh, if if it pans out, then that might be the strategy they go on. For, they use from now on. Anyways, you can read this whole article from HT on SlashFilm.com. We'll link it in the show notes. HT, where can we find more of your work online? You can find me at SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at HTranBui. And I have a podcast, the Millennial Falcon Podcast, on iTunes. Cool. And you can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Please give us a rating, a review on iTunes. That helps us out quite a bit. S- spread the word. Tell your friends. If you have a question for the mailbag, peter at slash And we will see you tomorrow. <laughs>